0: Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. We're going to begin our worship this morning by kicking off our Operation Christmas Child season and watching a video.
1: Today, our world is being transformed by love. People are sending shoebox gifts filled with the good news of Jesus Christ. Fueled by the power of prayer, shoeboxes are traveling to the ends of the earth. Bringing joy through a simple gift to over 100 million precious children. Shoebox gifts are shining a light into communities all around the world. Bringing good news and great joy with Operation Christmas Child. Good
2: news! I want the children of the world to know. I want their parents to know that God loves them. He hasn't turned His back on them. He cares for them and He wants them to be with Him in heaven. That's what it's all about.
1: These gifts bring joy not only to the hands that receive the shoeboxes but also those hands that give. People all over the country are excited to pack shoebox gifts.
2: When I look at these boxes, I just see thousands of smiling kids it's an opportunity for the children to learn about Christ by just one simple gift
3: we're here at a processing center where volunteers have traveled from all over the country just to be a part of this special project
4: I think it's an awesome opportunity to change the world
1: going to the ends of the earth shoe boxes are carried by any means necessary to that one special child waiting a world away.
4: Mira, te gustó, tu
1: Veronica and her siblings found themselves abandoned at an orphanage in Mexico after both of their parents were sent to prison. When I received my shoebox, God sent it for me. I could see how God through Operation Christmas Child, he's not just changing my life, He's changing a lot of kids'
5: lives. I remember three years ago when Veronica received her shoebox. Now she is a teacher in The Greatest Journey. It was never enough for us to go in, hand a child a shoebox, share the gospel with them, and then leave.
2: We developed this curriculum, The Greatest Journey, a 12-week discipleship program for the kids that make decisions for Christ.
1: After completing The Greatest Journey, children are blessed in a graduation ceremony where they receive a certificate and a bible in their own language
2: the greatest journey is saying jesus loves you
3: you are a somebody
5: but i truly believe
1: We are only seeing just the beginning of this project because the Lord, he's got something that is beyond our imagination into the millions and into the billions.
5: And these children will change the world.
2: shoebox is important you know they're all different there's no two shoeboxes alike kind of like these snowflakes no two snowflakes are alike but every shoebox is important because when you pack that box and you fill it with your love for these kids around the world and when you pray for the child who's going to get your box God hears those prayers and God answers those prayers you say I want the children of the world to know that God loves them and he has not forgotten them and I want to thank you Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for being a part of Operation Christmas Child. God bless you, and a Merry Christmas.
0: We are excited to be one, once again participating in the ministry of Operation Christmas Child. And we hope that each of you will prayerfully consider participating in building a shoebox or two for children in need around the world. Please stand and join us as we begin our service with worshiping the Lord together.
5: Where
4: many a dream has died Like a tree planted by the water
0: Our God and King
4: Lift Lift up your voice All of us with tender heart, forgiving others take our part. Of the sea, creation's revealing Your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature. Stars in the sky Told every lightning bolt where it should go. Or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow. Who imagined the sun and give source to it?
0: Father, we are in awe of all that you are, of all that you have created, of who we are in you and all you have done for us. We ask that you would be glorified through our worship. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and speak into our lives as we meet with you this hour and every hour. It is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
4: You call me out upon the wall the great unknown, where feet may fail, And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. do presence of my Savior Spirit lead me where my trust is without borders let me walk presence of my Savior. And I will call upon your name. And keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For I
3: Just for a while now to open the altar rail as a place to offer our prayers. This morning, as we remember the needs that are connected to us as well as the needs around the world, as you offer your prayers, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as your place of prayer, please join me. Father, we thank you today for the miraculous and for the ordinary, for the joy of those unusual moments, and for the pleasure of daily life, for the unexpected gifts of love and faithfulness of relationships renewed for healings of mind and body that we can't explain and just for the normal strength and energy that you give to us to live each day. Father, we pray that you will make us sensitive and aware of your working in the world around us, in our own lives. Help us to see you at work. In every moment, in every instance, in every event in all of life. As we come to this moment of prayer, we, we want to remember all who are grieving today. And we ask for your comforting mercy and grace in each of their lives. We pray for all who are in pain today. We pray especially for Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, for Matt Bissett, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth, Alton Shea, Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard. Crystal Blake, for Emily Crickler, for others who are on our minds and hearts today. We pray for each of them and for your healing grace in their lives. We pray for their caregivers, that you would give strength to them as they minister to body and souls. Father, we pray that you will give peace to all who are in distress who are weary and burdened, who are anxious and overwhelmed, who are facing the difficulties that come with living in this fallen world. Father, as we think about the needs of our lives and of those connected to us, we pray for your grace in each life and in each situation. Father, we pray for our world We are distressed about so much that's going on in our world. War, violence, terrorism, fear, drought, famine, poverty, death. Lord, we pray that that your spirit will, will be at work in places that we may consider lost causes. We pray that we will see your spirit at work through your people in the world, bringing hope where there's despair and life where there is death. Father, we pray especially for all who are suffering from the Ebola virus and ask for your grace to to bring an end to the virus and that you will help and protect all who have given of themselves to serve the minister, to to, uh, to be doctors and nurses and technicians and helpers in every way possible. And we ask for your grace upon families that are grieving on people who are ill. Father, we pray for Pastor Stan and the church in Uzbekistan. For the persecution that they are facing. We ask that you will give strength and help and the power of your spirit. In unusual ways. Father we thank you. That you are always more ready to hear. Than we are even to pray. You are more willing to give. Even than we are to desire. And certainly more than we deserve. Pour out the abundance of your mercy. Forgiveness, grace and strength. On us and on our world we ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who in loving kindness teaches us the model for prayer that we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The
5: scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2 And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from the night. from darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Children ages 2 through 5 and grades kindergarten through 3rd are now dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church, which meets in the Christian Education Building.
0: Please stand as we sing together.
4: you night of the soul. There in the sweetest songs of victory,
2: your grace
4: finds me. Yes, your grace finds
3: me. Amen. I invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting for those who are in worship today. So I knew that I was getting myself into uh, risky waters when I, last spring, said, what questions do you have that you'd like to hear sermons about? And when I started reading your questions, I realized I was in deeper than I, real, than I thought I was going to be. And uh, if you haven't, just a reminder, if you haven't picked up one of these bookmarks, uh, there's a bunch of them in the back on the little table there. Feel free to take one and others if you want to hand them out to people, but it gives you a list of the sermons we're going to talk about. And... Um, as we move forward, we're starting to get into more and more uh, controversial type things. And um, today is one of those days. And partly today, it's because this is outside of my comfort zone. It's outside of my knowledge base, way outside of my knowledge base to talk about the issues of creation. Um, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not the son of a scientist. I'm not the relative of a scientist. Um, <laughs> And I, you know, I think back to when I was in school and in science class, um, I I love chemistry. I like the the mathematical equations of chemistry, but the lab, not my favorite thing. I I think the professor was always afraid I was going to blow up something. And I remember, you know, when we did experiments with mercury, my favorite thing was not the experiment, but was just playing with the mercury. If you've ever done that, you know how it kind of group joins together? And I got in so much trouble for that and then even more trouble when I got done with it and dumped it in the sink. And I guess that stuff's expensive. Um, yeah, that, that was not a pleasant day in science class that day. And, I, you know, I remember grade school dissecting the frog. You know, we had partners. I had, a, I had a girl who was my partner, and I was happy to let her do it because I just really wasn't that interested in cutting up a frog. And that smell of formaldehyde still brings back really bad memories to me. Maybe it does to you. So this is way outside of, of my knowledge base. And so I, at least I have enough sense to go to people who it, this is their wheelhouse. This is what they do. And so over the course of the last few weeks, I've had a number of conversations with people about science and about creation and about the various ways in which we view it. Because I'm looking at the questions that you asked and a number of insightful questions from our children They keep. They tend to ask really good questions. There were a number of questions about where dinosaurs fit in the process, and I'm assuming they mean the big scary things, not the purple lovey Barney guy that is on television. I don't know where he fits in the whole thing, but that's another sermon. Um, You know, and, and you know they're asking about that. They're asking about you know how was how was the water and the earth separated when Earth is underneath the water, and you know these kinds of things. And one of the questions that kept coming up is how old is the earth i'm confused is it young is it old is it new and so there's a lot of these questions quite frankly that are outside of the realm of my knowledge but i've talked with people and tried to understand the various scientific and theories that are around and and one of the big questions is how did the earth how did the world and everything about it get here how did it start? And really, as I, as, as the conclusions that I've come to is that really you have two basic theories about how the world started. And either you believe that it started by random chance, something happened, maybe it was the Big Bang, but it, or maybe it just sort of spontaneously combusted or something, but it, it started by random chance in the evolutionary processes, or some kind of being created it, started it, got it going. And there are people, certainly in science, who are very antagonistic toward religion, toward the idea of a creator. In fact, uh, someone was saying to me recently that James Watson, who was one of the scientists that uh, uncovered DNA, said that his whole purpose for that His whole life goal of trying to discover DNA was not to help humanity. It was not to maybe prevent innocent people from going to jail or convicting guilty people. It was to prove that there was no such thing as God. That we didn't need God in the equation of how the world came to be. That was his design, that was his quest. And there is certainly this this sense of the difference between how the world got started as some people in science view it and people who view it from the perspective of at least some kind of designer, some kind of creative person. And quite frankly, I'm not sure we will ever prove any of that. And that's one thing that I've figured out as I've gone through this, that there is a lot of uncertainty no matter what our theory is. There is always uncertainty. There's always a statement of faith that we're going to make. Whether that is faith in evolution or faith in creation and what we see in the scriptures. Because none of it is precise. None of it's exact. There are always things we say, well, we think that's what happened. Maybe there's good reason for thinking that, but it's still a theory in one way or another. And when it comes to how things got started, and we say we believe God did it, and there are reasons for that. It is a statement of faith, ultimately. And one of the next questions then is, if you move past that, for most of us, I suspect, for the majority of us, the question is not, was there a creator who put this together? I think probably the majority of us, if not all of us, had in some way believed God started it. There was some, some kind of creator who began. And for most of us, it would be the biblical God. But the bigger division among Christians, among the church, among those who believe in the creator, is how did God do that? And that gets into the questions of how old the earth is, how young the earth is, what was the process of getting from the start to where we are now? And there are a lot of theories about that. And people feel very strongly about their particular theory. As I understand it, and again, one of the reasons I mentioned at the beginning that I, that I talk to other people is that when I get done and you don't like what I've had to say, you come and tell me and I'll tell you who to blame. Okay? Because <laughs> they're the people that told me this stuff, right? So, you know, as, you, there, as I understand it, there are there are basically a few theories that you could kind of group things together. And there are, of course, nuances within those theories. But it comes down to for the, either you have a sense of... Theistic evolution, which basically believes God was the was the prime mover. God started things in some form, and probably at the most uh, primordial beginning point, uh, a one cell organism, something, and evolution took it from there. And you know that based again based on scientific data that people see that they surmise and and. Uh, things that that people feel linked together. Some people in that theory believe that God started it and stepped back and just let the evolutionary processes take place. And, of course, that would mean that they believe the the universe is maybe 10, 20 billion years old, the earth maybe 4 to 5 billion years old. And other people believe that God started it that way. And when it got to a point where there were major shifts that needed to take place, God stepped in and precipitated those shifts. That's one theory. Another theory that would also talk about God as the creator is typically called intelligent design. And the point of that is that you look at creation, you should start with creation first and let it kind of go backwards. And you start with creation, you start all that God has made, and you look at it and you say, someone had to design this. It seems impossible that this would have started by chance. Something had to get this going. And, and I, I felt for a long time that of all the people on the face of the earth who would believe in a creator, I would think it would be physicians. You think about the human body and all of the intricacies of the human body and the ways in which the body works. It's just hard for me to fathom that you would look at this and say that happened by random chance. That was that came together just by accident, and and I, I, you know, there's a creator, there's a purpose, and so he looks back at it, and there is, and you look at creation, you look at all the ways in which the world is designed and the order of it, there there has to be some intelligent being that made this happen. The problem with that theory that often moves forward is that there is a sense of saying that proves. There is a creator. And I'm convinced, as I said a minute, moment ago, I don't think any of the theories prove what they, that their theory is the absolute. At some point, it's a matter of faith. Now, the evidence may be strong. It may, it may give us a grounding for our faith. We're not basing it on nothing. But to say that this proves something, I think, is beyond what we can say about any of the theories. At some point, it becomes, a state, it becomes an issue of faith. I believe this is the way. And then and, and intelligent design people are all over the map as I understand it, but m- many of them believe in an old earth, that, that it's been here for a long time and there are processes for it to get to that place that it has now. And then the other theory is some form of a young earth, that the world is maybe five to 8,000 years old that time may vary a little bit. And this is, comes down to, a, often these theories come down to, for Christians, how we view Genesis chapter 1. Do we view Genesis 1 as literal six day, 24 hour days of creation? That's actually describing what we know of as a day? Or is the, is that talking more figuratively? And the, the word day that's used there, the Hebrew word yom, can it is used often in Scripture to mean 24 hours, but it also can be used and is used to talk about something metaphorical and talk about something figuratively. And so there isn't any exact, precise way of seeing that. But we have theories about it. And if, if you believe that it is a literal day, then the earth would be young. And it would be a briefer time. And... Again, it comes down to how we view those days. And to say that it's literal may be true. To say that it's figurative may be true. And uh, sometimes we look at Scripture and not everything in Scripture we, we look at literally. Some things are designed to be figurative. Some things are designed to be metaphor. And as Charles Hummel says, who worked years for InterVarsity, someone said, do you believe in, do you believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture? And he said, well... I interpret the literal things literally and the figurative things figuratively and the metaphorical things metaphorically. I think that's true. The question sometimes is knowing which is which. And as we said last week, talking about the Scripture, we believe it is the inspired Word of God. It is God's Word and it is inspired to us. But we want to be careful about confining it too much. So the end result is... How old is the Earth? I'm not sure we know, and we have theories about it, and, and the theories are good, and they're based on information that we have. What concerns me as I think about the various theories is that sometimes we we take our theory, whatever it may be, and we we start, and uh, often people want to start an argument about the Bible and science, and we view them sometimes as if they are in competition with each other, as if it is us versus them. And I'm convinced that science is not evil. Science is part of the gift of God, because science is born out of God's gift to us to want to know and to explore and to learn and to, and to grow and to figure out things. We forget that in the early days of the church, the church was excited about science and supported it and, and, and uh, encouraged it. Because it was just a matter of exploring God's vast universe and all that God had made. The problem came when science gave some answers to the church that the church didn't like. And that's when some of the opposition began. But the church has been on the forefront of science through the centuries. Now granted, people want to take science and use it in a way that... that where they say, we want to use science to disprove God and to say that our faith is, is wrong... But that doesn't mean science is evil. It just means we're misusing it. In the same way, just because peop, just because we pervert sex it doesn't mean that sex is evil. It's a gift of God. It just means that we have perverted it. And science is not evil. Science is good. It's a gift of God. And we ought not to be afraid of science and scientific discoveries. If we, One of the things that I find as I'm reading about this is that I, there's a sense, I think, of fear about science. That what if scientists discover something that really, truly disproves God? And I want to say, what kind of faith in God do we have? What kind of God do we worship? Do we really believe that we could discover something that would, that would prove God's existence is untrue? Now, people might, what they discover, they might take that, as people do, and say, well, that that tells you God isn't real. Well, that's just theory, and that's putting their faith into what they have discovered. But it isn't exact, and it isn't proof. It's faith. And for us to say that we are afraid of science, and that we want to, we don't want, we want to hold science down, and it is the enemy, I think that's that's approaching God from a very small perspective. Because God is bigger than that. You think about what God has created. Are we worried that we're going to find something that in God's vast universe that's going to deny him who he is? No. We're going to pervert whatever we want to pervert. We're going to skew whatever we want to skew. And we shouldn't be afraid of discovery. Someone said to me the other day that what they, they kind of think of, of how God watches us discover things in the way that we watch our children discover things. If you have children, you've seen that, ex- have that experience of a child coming to you and saying, Mommy, Mommy, look what I just found. Look what I just learned. And we, we look at them and we, they're so excited about it. And truth be told... We could say to them, that's nothing. I know a whole lot more than that. Or even, you know, that's nothing. You're going to learn so much more as you get older. Just that, Why are you so excited about it? We wouldn't say that. We're as excited with them as they are. Because of this discovery and their face is lit up. And they're so interested and excited about what they've found. And I think God is that way with us too. Do our discoveries sometimes lead us down wrong paths? Of course they do. We're we're fallen, frail people. We take wrong paths. We make wrong assumptions. But God delights in our discovery. God delights when we feel joy at uncovering his awesome creation that we will never get to the end of. So what exactly is the creation story telling us? One of the simplest questions that I I got back about this whole thing was, so why did God create the world? Why did God create all of this stuff? Let me just share with you a few things real quickly. I think it's important for us to understand that the creation story that we read in Genesis and we find filtered throughout Scripture... The intent of that is not to set a timetable, it's to reveal the otherness of God. You see, we have to set it in the context in which Genesis was written. It's written in a world in which all the other nations around Israel have their own creation stories. And all of those stories, in all of those stories, creation, the world comes into being because the gods, not because the gods choose to create, but because it's an accident, it's punishment it is a means of of something happening that they really don't want to happen. There are stories of the gods battling one another and, and one god kills, defeats another god. And that god who, that is, that wins the battle, takes a, a sword and slices down the middle of the other god, opens it up in half, and half becomes the heavens and half becomes the earth. It's punishment. It's... It's, it's, not, it's not that they are they are creating because they love to create. And the Genesis story says right at the first, in the beginning, God created. There is intent and purpose. God creates because he wants to. And it reveals how different, how other than all the other gods Yahweh is. This story really is about God. 38 times in these first couple of chapters, the name God is used. And instead of of thinking, it may well be a timetable. It may well tell us about that. But I think it's so much bigger than that. So much more than that. It's about who God is as the creator who chooses to bring everything that is into existence. Because he loves to create. And that then leads us to why God creates human beings. And again, in all the other ancient stories, human beings are created because the gods are obligated to create them or because it's a punishment in creating them. It's because, I mean, they, they want the human beings to do the work that they don't want to do. And scripture tells us God creates because he wants relationship with human beings. He loves human beings and he creates out of that love. And he wants, he wants a reciprocal relationship with human beings. And that means that he leaves it wide open. He takes a risk in creating. Part of the risk in creating is that he, there, it's open to scientific theories that may not make, put him in the best light. And part of the risk of creating human beings is that God knows that if he's, we have a true relationship, that means we can accept him, love him, or reject him. And we do reject him. And unlike the other gods who respond to human rejection with spite and anger and hatred and vengeance, the moment human beings are, reject God, he prom- yes, the consequences of their sin are seen, but from that moment, God is wooing, yearning for his people, calling them, coming to them, and ultimately sending his son to go to the cross and to rise again so that we can know the fullness of his love once more. God loves us and it changes everything about us. We're not accidents. We're intended. We're chosen. We're valuable. We have worth because we're created. God chooses to create us. Isn't something we're not forced on him? We're not accidents that just happen to take place, and it changes everything about who we are as human beings. And God says to human beings, All that I've created, everything that I've made, I value you so much that I'm going to let you take care of it, I'm going to put it in your hands. And God, who loves to create and creates so with such beauty and and majesty, and looks at everything that he creates and said, it, "It is good." Says to human beings, "Now you take care of it." You know, most of the translations, beginning in Genesis one four, where each day it says, "It's good, it's good, it's good." Vic Hamilton says he translates that word, "It is beautiful." And I like that because the idea of good has a sense of being moral can be good as opposed to bad. But there is this aesthetic sense of God's creation that he looks at it and says, this is beautiful. And he says to us as human beings, what I've created in beauty, you care for it. You watch over it. You steward it. It's our responsibility. He tells them, he says to uh, Adam and Eve, You know, I've given you everything here. You till the soil, you work at it and take care of it. And quite frankly, the church has a kind of a bad track record of taking care of the earth. For some reason, we have decided, and I think some of it has to do with our discussion next week when we start talking, when we talk about heaven, but we have decided that the earth is not that important to us. Despite the fact that God's, God creates it, With such beauty and vastness and intricacy. It is so important to God. And yet for some reason we've decided it's not all that important to us. Maybe that's one of the reasons why science feels antagonistic toward Christians. Because of the way we treat what we say our great God has created. And that brings me to the seventh day of creation. I was thinking about this week, about that seventh day, and the thought struck me, and this is just a theory, I'm just surmising. What if the first six days, what if the, What if Genesis speaks about six days as a means of highlighting the seventh day? What if the language about six days might or might not mean six literal days, but it's the only way in which God can bring us to the point where we see the the vitally vital importance of the seventh day. When you think about it, he says, on the seventh day, God rested. God rested? What does that even mean? The almighty God of the universe sits down and says, whew, I'm exhausted. I've had it. Man, this is just, uh, I, I got to take a break. I don't think so. But the idea of Sabbath is so important, so vitally important, that God words the language that way. And Sabbath is built into the very nature of creation and we as human beings. Sabbath is, you know, that idea of Sabbath, the word is used almost 150 times in the Scripture. It is one of the big ten commandments and yet I think we don't really pay that much attention to it. We don't really value Sabbath the way God does. And our refusal to practice Sabbath implies that we, we probably better work on the world because I'm not sure God can handle it. And it implies that our worth and our value as human beings is in what we can produce and what we do, not in the fact that we are special creatures of God, loved by Him. And it implies that the earth, that we know better how to maintain the earth than God does. Because when we get into the, later into the Pentateuch and God gives His command to the Israelites, He says to them, every seventh year, you let the earth be it needs to rest and that's an act of faith I mean we think it's an act of faith to stop working one day a week he says to the Israelites for a year don't do anything with the land and I'll take care of you it's an act of trust in God and we so often miss it because we think we have to work and work and work Walter Brueggemann says God is not a workaholic And if he's not, why are we? He says, God is not like Pharaoh driving the Israelites. that They have to produce more and more and more at his bidding. God says, I'm bringing you out of that bondage into the freedom where you can experience rest. The whole point of it is not to... What we can't do as we often interpret Sabbath, it's what we can do. It is time set aside to to be with God, to listen to God when we don't have that kind of time as work envelops us. And work is not evil, work is a gift of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are said, they're told to work the ground. Work is good, but so is rest. And rest is what makes work worthwhile. Observing Sabbath is saying we trust God, we believe that God knows what he's doing, and we need time set aside to experience God in deeper ways and with more time and restfulness than we can the rest of the week. What Williman says is coming together on Sunday, is the most radical countercultural thing that we do as Christians. We say to the rest of the world, we believe this day is different, and we do that by simply not showing up for work. Because we believe that Sabbath is important, it is vital to who we are as God's people. It is one of the most profound acts of trust and faith that we have available to us. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons, one of the consequences of not observing Sabbath comes out in how we treat each other. One thing I've learned about, as I've read and and talked to people about the creation theories, is that there is a lot of antagonism about the various theories. People are, are very antagonistic about my way is right, your way is wrong. And if you read, if you go on the internet and you read literature and you read what people have to say, there's a lot of vitriolic language among Christians about what we believe is right and wrong. And one of the results of not practicing Sabbath, not spending time with God, letting God have that, that, those moments of getting inside of us is that we don't act like Jesus toward each other. And you, all, there. We look at the scientific theories, the, the various issues related to how God made the world. There's a lot of ambiguity. But the one thing in Scripture, lots of script, things in Scripture are unambiguous, and one of those is the commands about how we treat each other. Let me paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13. If you figure out exactly how God made the world, and your conclusions are without error. Your conclusions are perfect, and they make all the sense in the world, but you have not love. Your conclusions are worthless, and you've missed it. We may not understand how God made things. We may disagree about that, but we have to agree That God calls us to love each other. And as I said a few weeks ago, it's not enough. As someone reminded me, it was so powerfully, it's not enough to agree to disagree. Because that implies I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll see the light. We disagree in a spirit of love and respect and humility and openness, acknowledging that, I don't have all the answers and actually this person who disagrees with me, they see things in ways that I don't and I can learn from them. And I need to learn from them because I haven't figured out everything there is to know. And we have that kind of spirit with each other. Because ultimately, Genesis and Scripture is not so much about answering our questions about creation and everything related to it. It is about worshiping God, the Creator, who is our hope. Ultimately, it's about worshiping God. When you read Isaiah chapter 40. Israel says to God, You've forgotten us. You have ignored us. And God says, Really? Look at all of everything I've made. I'm the Creator of everything. And he says, so why are you saying I've forgotten you? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. The creator God is our hope. It's the creator God who sends his son about whom John says he created everything. And in his death and resurrection, the new creation and the new kingdom has begun. And someday God's going to make everything clear. He's going to set everything to rights, as Inti Wright says, and until that day, we just keep worshiping and we learn and we uncover and we keep exploring. But in the context of the creator, who is our hope, our hope is not in a the theory of creation. Our hope is in the creator. So how old is the earth? I don't know. And that's okay. And you have a theory, and I might have a theory, and other people have theories. I don't know. But I believe with all of my heart that God is the creator. And the calling on each of us is to worship him, to see his grandeur, to celebrate his creation... To be stewards of it as together we become his representatives in this world that needs him. It needs to know him as we have known him. Holy Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your creative genius. Pour out your spirit in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something again this week. If you are here last week, I asked you about reading a little more scripture each day. Which hopefully we'll continue to do that. But this week I want to ask you to, to take some time and observe God's creation. Look at trees. Look at. Think about your own body. Think about the stars in the sky, the moon, the sun, the order of, of what God has made and the intricacies and the vastness of what God has made. And let it lead you to, his, to him as the creator. And worship him. And take time to think about him. And to give thanks that he's made you. You're his and he loves you. Worship. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.